Hello and welcome to episode 119 of Kentucky History and Haunts. I'm your host, Jesse Bartholomew. It is Pride Month, and the Filson Club put out an article that was talking about this other article that originally came out in 2012. Uh, it's called, It Could Be Dangerous, Gay Liberation and Gay Marriage in Louisville, Kentucky in the 1970s. The article was written by Catherine Fossil, I, I'm guessing here, F-O-S-L, Fossil. And it was in the Ohio Valley History, which is a Filson publication. So this was written a little over 10 years ago, and I wanted to take a closer look at it because it's a big part of our cultural history. And that time period she looks at, uh, the 1970s, is really a huge moment for gay rights throughout the country. Uh, with Stonewall occurring in 1969, that was sort of the catalyst for what happened all over the states in the following decade. So... I wanted to take some time and just kind of comb through this article and talk about what it was like for gay people in Louisville and kind of how things were playing out here versus uh, other places at the time. So the full article is 21 pages long, and if you would like to read the whole thing, which I recommend you do, it's easy to find. Uh, you can Google the title of the article, um, which I'll put in the show notes, and I'll also just put a direct link in the show notes so you can uh, find it easily. So uh, I guess one last thing before I get started, I do want to give a listener warning. Um, this is just going to cover discrimination against LGBTQ people. So if that is not something you want to hear about today, go ahead and skip this episode. Um, but it's important to hear, so I hope that you won't. All right, let's get started. Two women Marjorie Jones and Tracy Knight wanted to get married. They applied for a marriage license on July 8, 1970 in Louisville, Kentucky, and three days later, their request was denied by an amused county clerk. That clerk was James Hallahan, and he felt that the purpose of marriage was procreation, and so by his logic, and at that time, there was no reason for two women to be married. Jones and Knight responded with a lawsuit, which Hallahan called dangerous. He feared that if they won, it would cause, quote, breakdowns in the government, and it would be responsible for, quote, retarding the continuity of the human race. According to the author, uh, Catherine Fossil, this was only the second legal challenge for same-sex marriage in the United States, and they promptly lost their case and the appeal that followed. I want to read straight from the article. Quote, In the four months between Jones and Knight's visit to the county clerk to request a marriage license and the subsequent trial to determine their right to have one, their quest inspired the city's first open expression of gay rights activism, the early phase of a social movement that has persisted for more than two generations. That was their intention, as Jones hesitantly explained 42 years later. We did it to help get a gay liberation movement started, to make people begin to realize that we're human beings the same as they are. Several of the two dozen or so young gays and lesbians who congregated in the clerk's office and later in the courtroom to support Knight and Jones recall the experience as a galvanizing one, and the county attorney on the case remembered it decades later as the first important trial of his tenure. Fossil goes on to point out that before the Jones v. Hallahan trial, 
The visibility and social acceptance of LGBT people was so very different than it was even a year before. There were these, quote, thriving gay subcultures in Louisville and in Lexington and some of the bigger small towns in Kentucky, but they were still closeted. They were in hiding. They were isolated, and they were keeping a low profile to literally keep themselves safe. If that sounds overdramatic, I promise you it's not. In a 1969 Harris poll in Time magazine, it was reported that 69% of Americans found homosexuals, quote, harmful to American life. Over two-thirds of the U.S. population. So that kind of helps explain why it was so um, brave to do something like apply for a marriage license. It was taking a huge chance because then everyone in town would know that you did it. So Fossil writes that doing this, applying for the marriage license, was a, quote, catalyst for the formation of what appears to have been the first openly gay rights organization in Kentucky, the Louisville Gay Liberation Front, or LGLF. We'll talk more about them in a minute, but I mentioned Stonewall, and I I would hope you all know what I'm talking about. And if not, there's plenty of books and documentaries, and I recommend you, you watch or read some of them. But when Stonewall happened um, in 1969, there was no coverage in the Courier-Journal. And when I say there was no coverage of it, I mean it. I confirmed this. The days that they occupied Stonewall were June 28th to July 3rd. Those were the big days. So I went through the Courier-Journal papers from back then. And there, there are plenty of obscure articles in the paper those days, like, Scientists at Harvard were excited about a new sunburn screen. There was a hospital strike in Charleston. Um, Louisville was ranked in the top seven dirtiest cities in the nation. Two subs reached Loch Ness to hunt for monster. Those were some of the headlines. They were looking for the Loch Ness monster. I went through every day of the paper, June 28th to July 5th, couldn't find a single article about what was happening in New York. So there was a youth-oriented publication called the Free Press of Louisville, and that's the paper that reported the news on Stonewall. So in July of 1970, a year after the occupation of Stonewall and a day after they were denied their marriage license, Tracy Knight and Marjorie Jones joined a group of 13 women and seven men who met in an apartment on Belgravia Court in Old Louisville And this meeting would mark the formation of the Louisville Gay Liberation Front. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDSE. Lynn Full, one of the founding members, recalled the formation of the group this way. Quote, this was entirely homegrown. I got all the political papers and we read about what was going on. The gay community was coming out of its shell. Then we started to organize. There were meetings. What do we call ourselves? We were certainly leftist identified with everything that was going on in Vietnam, gay, this liberation front, that liberation front. So we became the Louisville Gay Liberation Front. 
Lynn Full is an interesting character. She was around 25 at the time of the LGLF's formation. As a high school student, she had been one of two white people to sit in and get arrested with a group of black youth protesting Louisville's segregated department stores downtown. Uh, that was in 1961. She had a master's degree in English from U of L. She was a prostitute. She was a lesbian. And she shared an apartment with a man named Mike Randall, who was a, quote, gay hairdresser and cross-dressing performer who became a co-leader of the group. So to be all of these things fairly openly in the early 70s is just kind of hard to fathom. It's amazing. I want to read another quote. Uh, this is another member, Mickey Nelson, who was a younger member, and this is her recalling uh, going to some of the first meetings. Quote, I expected, since I'd seen the ad in the free press, that these would all be young, hippy-dippy types, kind of androgynous, and jeans and unisex haircuts. When I got there, it was different. There was some of that variety, but there were also a lot of role-playing butch femme folks, and that was my first exposure to that. It was kind of interesting to me to see that there was a woman there who had on a flannel shirt and she had her breasts bound underneath it, she was wearing men's trousers with a firm crease down the front. She had some sort of Florsheim wingtip shoes and men's socks. I was kind of wowed by the whole experience. I thought, well, these are my people. We are all kinds of different ways, but we have something in common, and let's see what it's about. Um, it should be noted that this group was overwhelmingly white. Uh, there was a single black member who came to meetings consistently, he couldn't be located for an interview, but we do know that he was uh, once threatened by another member's parents for being black. So even though they were a progressive group for the time, they still had their flaws. So there's that. Um, this is really interesting to me. I'm actually related to Hunter S. Thompson and his lesser known brother, Jim Thompson. And the LGLF would advertise their group in the free press. And for a while, Jim Thompson was writing an advice column for gays in the paper. Um, I thought that was very interesting. The other way they could grow their membership besides the free press was word of mouth, um, telling people about the group, usually in gay bars that were pretty isolated and under the radar they would also go to Guthrie Green at UofL, which was like where the counterculture kids hung out. Um, and then the group would meet at people's apartments. Um, but like I said, there were some bars that they could go to, and they spent a lot of time at two bars in particular, the Queen Bee and the Downtowner. But that didn't last long because the bar owners really didn't want pamphlets being handed out at their bars. Uh, they didn't want to be the meeting place for this group. It could be dangerous, right? That's the name of the article. So the LGLF actually ended up getting banned altogether from the Queen Bee. And owners of the downtowner sprayed the group with hoses for trying to hand out leaflets at the entrance of their bar. Um, Later, Lynn Full would concede that the bars probably weren't the best idea. She compared it to biting the hand that feeds you. Um, and the way they saw it, these bars weren't really thrilled about gays being accepted more openly because then they wouldn't have to hide out in their bars. So 
they kind of regrouped and they started traveling to some universities in the region trying to show college students what they were about. So by the fall of 1970, they had actually established a gay studies class through UofL's free university. These were not credited classes, but you could come in the evenings and they would cover a variety of topics and a full-time faculty member had to sponsor it. So they got Dr. Edwin Siegel to do that, to sponsor the class. Uh, he was a young anthropologist, kind of new to town, and he agreed to sponsor this class. So they found that working um, in these school environments was actually a little bit more successful than trying to just spread the word at bars. This was pretty common, um, activism rooted in universities. There's an article from 1972 in the Courier-Journal about the Gay Liberation Alliance in Lexington at UK. They wanted to be formally recognized by the university and, and the staff. Um, specifically, the dean of students at the University of Kentucky was having a tough time with this. Of course, under Kentucky law, homosexuality was considered an indecent act. It was a felony that could send you to prison for two to five years. So this was a really interesting time for, for students at universities and for the staff. Um, at universities and elsewhere, often the method of spreading the word was based on consciousness raising, which is getting people to understand other people's experiences, basically. And this approach was a pretty successful one. And there were moments where, during interactions with the public, the LGLF was actually supported by their straight peers. Now, it didn't happen often, but it did happen. One example of this uh, is when Spiro Agnew came to Louisville and there was a protest, and one of the straight protesters cried out, Spiro is a fag. And in response, the LGLF members started chanting, gay is good, Agnew's not. And the entire crowd, both gay and straight, joined in chanting the same thing. Now that's a pretty small example because um, most of the protesters in that crowd were probably pretty progressive to begin with, but it is an example that uh, Catherine Fossil uses in the article. But let's get back to this lawsuit. So after they were denied a marriage license, Knight and Jones filed a lawsuit. Why did they do this? Quote, many states, including Kentucky, had legal definitions of marriage that did not explicitly bar same-sex unions. The notion of marriage as a heterosexual institution was so deeply assumed that lawmakers perceived no need to designate it as such. That opening in Kentucky law, bolstered by a new climate of possibility, enabled the suit that became Jones v. Hallahan. The trial began in November of 1970. There were about two dozen gay liberation supporters in the audience. The county attorney, I think his name was Bruce Miller, would recall later that the presiding judge, Lyndon Schmidt, was obviously revolted by the case. So the judge called the plaintiffs and their lawyers up to the bench and asked, quote, which one of you is the he-she? And then he told Tracy Knight that he found her pantsuit offensive and insisted that she go home and change into a skirt or a dress. So she did. They literally took a, a break so that she could go change into something that didn't offend the judge. 
They reconvened. Uh, both sides made their arguments. It only lasted a little over two hours, and a scholar of sexual orientation law said that this was amazing in a time when most of these cases would go to summary judgments without even having a trial, without even hearing from both parties, really. So a two-hour hearing seems crazy quick today, but it was actually quite a feat back then for it to even have lasted that long. They had a psychologist testify. That was Sander Klein, and he said that he examined the women and they were mentally sound. They were able to relate socially to men, but, quote, were not able to have what we call a normal heterosexual relationship. The attorneys representing Knight and Jones argued simply that because there was no clear legal statute specifically against marriage between two women, it must be legal. The marriage license does not even have a question about sex of the two parties being wed. So the county attorney responded that same-sex marriage lay so far outside, quote, the ethics of public policy, the social fabric, nature, and everything else in this country, that the framers of the statute had not considered or intended any alternative to heterosexual marriage. Knight and Jones attorneys responded that this was a violation of the 1st, 8th, 9th, and 14th Amendments. The author of this article, Catherine Fossil, also noted that at the time of this trial, Kentucky legislature still had not amended the state's marriage statute to allow interracial marriage, and this was also something that the attorneys brought up during the trial. Um, another interesting thing about it is that they both testified. Um, Knight and Jones both took the stand, and that was a pretty bold move. And from what I read, it sounds like they were eloquent, calm, concise, and did an excellent job, but it didn't matter. In February 1971, the judge who was offended by a woman wearing pants declared that Kentucky's marriage statute had never been intended to allow homosexual marriage. In his five-page decision, he wrote, quote, there is no reason why we should condone and abet a spirit of what is accepted as perverted lust. Two years later, in 1973, the Kentucky Supreme Court rejected an appeal. The LGLF came to a pretty abrupt halt. They had some good momentum in 1971, uh, but there was an incident. Some members of the group established a gay lib house on Bonnie Castle Avenue in the Highlands, and it became known for having minors present. Uh, people knew that there were kids under 18 hanging out there. And they also knew that people were smoking pot there. And so it was raided by the police in late 1971, and more than two dozen people were arrested, and they never really recovered from that. That doesn't mean gay activism stopped altogether in Louisville. Quote, but it took a quieter turn for the next few years with the emphasis on internal community building, even as more gays and lesbians came out. As a result, Little, if any, overlap exists in biographies between the handful of new left youth who founded the Louisville GLF and the new group of activists who, in 1991, established Louisville's Fairness Campaign, an organization dedicated to achieving gay rights within a wider social justice framework of coalition building with other causes. The two movements were separated by the discovery and spread of AIDS, the rise of the religious right, 
currents of separatism that made it hard to organize beyond single identity politics, and regional and national momentum, both for and against the expansion of liberties for same-sex loving people. Yet, these two generations of Louisville's gay movement share some common ground. Both, for example, were distinctively lesbian-led, in contrast to many similarly situated local campaigns. Appropriately, perhaps, the issue of gay marriage also unites both eras of Louisville's gay movement, as the 2004 battle waged by fairness campaign supporters to defeat the Kentucky Constitutional Amendment on Marriage attest. Ironically, two of the five LGLF veterans who offered their memories for this essay became among the early same-sex couples to wed legally in the 21st century, though they had to travel to other states to do so. Now I'd like to finish with a couple letter letters to the editor uh, that were written to the Courier-Journal by Louisvillians in the early 1970s when all this was going on. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I have to tell you all, I was very excited when I found this first one because I knew that the name of the author of this letter uh, sounded familiar. And I texted my mom and I was like, mom, this name is so familiar. And she was like, yeah, I, I sold this lady her house. Um, my mom's known her for a very long time and some of her family. And she said she was kind of famous for her letters to the editor. And uh, so anyway, this, this is the first one. And it says, criticizes court's objection. And this is uh, November 1970. Judge Lyndon Schmidt's prejudices are showing. His objection to Tra Miss Tracy Knight's pantsuit in court appears to be a clear expression of bias. At this particular time, the pantsuit is a widely accepted mode of dress among women. Ordinarily, it does not call into question the womanliness of the person wearing it. The main issues in this case are sensitive enough without adding to them the petty emotional overload of clothing offensive to the court. And that was written by Pat Shervenak. Uh This one's kind of interesting because it's like supportive and insulting all at the same time, uh, which happened a lot in the 1970s, I think, and, and still does. Um... It says, of homosexual marriage. Homosexual marriage? Why not? If both applicants are legally adults and fulfill all other provisions demanded by state and federal ordinances, I see no reason for not granting them a license for these reasons. One, such unions would tend to stem the population explosion. Two, according to Dr. Kinsey and Dr. Freud, Common law homosexual marriage is, and has been for hundreds of years, an indisputable fact. Three, the present phenomenon exhibited and culturally accepted by our modern society that boys should look like girls, girls should look like boys, is accepted without question. Four, the structure of our federal income tax laws makes it impossible to be a contended single person and still retain a proportionate part of earned income to survive. Five, 
women's recent rebellion to be accepted in the business world as an equal to the male with all the benefits of financial remuneration, but minus any responsibility whatsoever. (laughs) Seven. And finally, the Constitution, which stipulates that all men are born equal and each shall be protected by this covenant. Therefore, man is defined as being a resident of the USA. So there you are. So that's an interesting one. Um, I didn't want to finish with that one, so I found uh, a good one. I thought this was a good one. And this was written in December of 1970. Um, It says, Homosexual Marriage. By now, most people in this area know that two females were recently refused a marriage license to marry each other, even though state law does not give the county court clerk authority to deny a marriage license because of sex. By state law, these ladies should have been granted a marriage license. I have been waiting for thousands to raise a cry in their support, especially those who espouse rigid adherence to constituted law and blind enforcement of laws, regardless of who gets hurt and how. Where are those who applauded the use of guns on campuses to enforce the law? And I hear nothing from those who reveled in the recent campaign for strict and tough law enforcement. Legal conservatives and law and order people Stand up and support these ladies, or the true color of that flag you are waving will show. So one more thank you to Catherine Fossil for writing this article and for the Filson Society for uh, recirculating it and getting it in front of my eyeballs so I could cover it. Um, And again, I'll link it in the show notes so you can read the whole thing. It's pretty interesting. If you have any thoughts on this episode, um, you can always email kyhistoryhaunts at gmail.com or find me on social media. Search Kentucky History and Haunts on Facebook, at uh, kyhistoryhaunts on Instagram. There is a website that I need to update. It's kyhistoryhaunts.com. You can find additional sources there. You can find merch there if you want a cool shirt or a cool hat. There's also a link in the show notes where you can leave me a one-time donation if you aren't ready to commit to being a monthly supporter. That's okay. Just buy me a cup of coffee. It's That's how I get this stuff done. <laughs> all right. Uh, thank you all so much for listening. Happy Pride, and until next time. <laughs>